solution. It's how we do it. Here's solutions. What? It's how we do it. Here's solutions. It's how we do it. Here's solutions. Get with the movement. Making sure you educated. Stay up on your grind. Here's in the community of seeing that it's time. Teaching from an early age. Identify the signs that violence is around. There's a way that we design. Safety, equity, and respect is what you need. Gotta have all three if you are building a um, I'll first start by thanking our partners um, who are very strong advocates of TIP and our philosophy, our lifestyle, trauma-informed primary prevention, Dignity Health Cox and Chicanos por la Causa. Um, yeah, just cannot do without them. So the agenda for today, um, but um, we're going to talk about like self-care in the first section is like historical and current trauma. The second section will be understanding the root causes of um, issues. The section three is going to be um, tip, tip practical application. And then the section four is going to be tip 101. Section five is going to be taking it to the streets, which is like um, how to use it in life. And then the last we'll do is a wrap. Okay, so what you're going to hopefully get out of this um, this presentation, this podcast, is six, six objectives that kind of just get you into that lens and that trauma-informed lens and kind of remind you that this is um, very accessible to everyone to kind of shift your thinking into being trauma-informed. Um, and so the objective are to help you, number one, to review and reverse the impact of generational and current trauma slash COVID. Number two, to review the six principles of trauma-informed care. Number three is the big one, to review how to normalize equity with evidence-driven strategies. And we're going to give you very concrete examples of what Peer Solutions does. And we're hoping that you can recognize and reward yourself um, for knowing that the work that you are also doing is normalizing equity. Number four, to internalize trauma-informed primary prevention strategies, like I said, real concrete examples. Uh, and number five, to normalize self-care and self-advocacy for self and others. So just as a warning, some of these topics are very sensitive and if it makes you uncomfortable or it's hard to listen to, just do whatever you're needing. You can like step away and take a break just to make yourself feel better and just wanna let you know that it's okay. So, um, what are some like self-care things? So first is positive self-talk, um, and then because negative self-talk can hurt yourself and others, and then you can um, identify. You need to identify and remove um, like possible sources of negativity, like social media, like when people are like bringing you down or bringing others down, and then um take care of self like what can you do every day that you love that makes you feel better um like music art family like going out with your friends just something that can make you relax and feel better about yourself you know and so the section the first section i'm starting the first section which is historical and current trauma thank you abby as mentioned, our first section is about historical trauma. And this was a term coined in the 1980s by Dr. Maria Yellowhorse Braveheart. And really it's defined as we see here as a multi-generational trauma that's experienced by a specific groups. So it could be 
racial, ethnic group. Um, these are major historical events that oppressed particular groups of people because of their status um, as oppressed people. So for example, slavery, the Holocaust, forced migration, the colonization of Native Americans here. Sometimes this concept is referred to as collective or complex trauma because it's a series of events. It's something that it, it shatters the experience of safety for a group or even several groups of people. And it's the term collective trauma is because these are often collective in nature. It's a shared experience that um, as Dr. Leah Saltzman says, it alters the narrative and psyche of a group or community. We see epigenetic changes there as well. So just thinking about some historical examples where we've seen this type of collective historical trauma, as I mentioned before, we had the foundation here of the United States through genocide, colonization, and slavery. Slavery was a widespread practice um, and every United States colony had enslaved humans still in 1690. Um, the area that we currently stand on used, most recently was Mexico. And so 55% of Mexico was taken by the US in 1848, which had a, a huge impact on the indigenous populations in the area once again. We had the Chinese Exclusion Act was the first time we saw the United States actually create legislation about specific country that they would not be accepting immigrants from. We have the Holocaust or the Shoah in 1933, where we saw um, eugenics and the murder of 6 million Jews from all throughout Europe and really the globe. So this was not not like colonization in the same way that it was sort of like all throughout um, Europe and many, many countries just to destroy, you know, a single group of people. We had the civil rights movement, which this month there has been kind of a, a focus and reflection during MLK month on the civil rights movement of the 50s. We have some of us remember here in Arizona, the impacts of ICE and immigration reform that took place in the early 2000s. And more recently, I'm sure all of us, regardless of if we're teenagers or adults can remember the widespread global impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. And throughout all history, really, we have you know people with disabilities, housing insecurity and food insecurity, socioeconomic status, we see that throughout all situation in history, these oppressed people really are experiencing that collective trauma. Likewise with um, police brutality and adverse childhood experiences, this is something we've seen throughout human history. Speaking of those ACEs, the, the famous kind of landmark study about ACEs well, took place in 1995 and 1997, and it confirmed the hypothesis that there's long-term damage and increased risk factors after someone has experienced violence, um, or not just violence, but any adverse childhood experience, and it disrupts the brain development for you know, forming humans. And so childhood abuse and what we experience as children really does, and the science confirms, impacts our outcomes later in life.
And we see that this is not the same across the board. So 61% of Black children, 51% of Latine, Latinx children have experienced at least one ACE as compared with 40% of white children. And so when we think about the outcome and the risk factors later on in life and why we see those discrepancies as adults, we have to remember they don't start as adults. Oftentimes the root of these issues is occurring during childhood. When it comes to um, mental health and suicidal ideation, 80%, the overwhelming majority of suicide attempts by youth can be contributed to ACEs. So additionally, the odds of ever attempting suicide are 30 times higher for adults with four or more ACEs compared to adults with no ACEs. And the next up, we'll talk a little of what's happening in Arizona. So, in 2020, Arizona ranked 49th place for youth access to mental health care and suicide rates were up from 30% in 2019. So we did see that even prior to a global pandemic, we were experiencing huge disparities in our state when it comes to mental health. What were some impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic? We saw poverty rates increase we saw like lack of support for students who were learning at home and really you know sometimes parents are not qualified to provide the same level of education and so we saw poor academic performance i was teaching online during this time and policies really had to change overnight to try to push these kids along but in the process of pushing them along um, their education was not really considered did they understand the topics or were we just socially pushing them along. We saw mental health challenges as we just looked at before. The issues that existed prior were exacerbated. We saw, there's obviously we experienced a lot of death due to COVID-19 being, you know, biological pathogen. And we also saw some differences in socialization and development, just being so far apart from one another. So because the dynamics of household, money, time spent at home, having school as a safe space, there's a variety of factors that could have led to this outcome. But the number of children ages five and up victimized by child abuse tripled as a result of COVID. Here in Maricopa County, we also saw our number of unsheltered folks increase 35% over two years since 2020. So many of us were still experiencing lockdown for years or two, you know, after the onset of the global pandemic. So we saw emergency rooms were overflowing with unsheltered humans. And if we think about Maricopa County, it's also a health epidemic when it comes to the heat and the extreme weather and temperatures that we're experiencing. So when our emergency rooms are overrun with one thing, we leave ourselves vulnerable in every other area like extreme weather that already existed. So once again, looking at um, poverty that our youth were experiencing. So we saw incomes going down, poverty increasing as you know, two years later, right at that, um, 2022 mark, many of the pandemic benefits ended. So there were some rent freezes, there were some stipends going out, there were 
um, you know, local and national programs to sort of stimulate the economy that people were relying on for economic security. Bringing it to 2023, almost all of our schools are back in person, person, excuse me, operating as normal. And Arizona ranked last for public school systems. And we can see that data is linked here in our student success, student safety, and school quality. Those were three of those metrics that were measured. So when people ask us, it's not just a measurement of you know money. It could be a function of that, but that's not the only metric that we're looking at. So in terms of proficiency, you know, if we are ranked last in the state, how are math and reading level proficiencies going for us in Arizona? So in 2022 here, 10% of Native American, 20% Black, 22 Hispanic, and 43 white fourth graders were proficient at that fourth grade level. We saw 7% of Native American, 13% of Black, 50% Hispanic, and 36 white eighth grade students were proficient in math. So really, you know, we would love to see proficiency at or near 100% if we're providing the needed support and academic um, accommodations for our students. And we can see that in Arizona, we're very, very far away from that right now. So we're gonna be starting section two now, which is understanding the root causes. The root causes are the, are, has an acronym of known as S, OSN, which is it's oppression, silence, slash denial, normalize harm. Yeah, if we understand these um, root causes of violence, like Robert laid out, then that makes it so much easier to address the violence and the issues that are that are going on in our world. And so, flipping back to root causes when we just saw the outcomes and the statistics regarding outcomes in Arizona schools. There is some data about exclusionary school discipline practices. So when we think about disparities in race, for example, we have federal data sets that show Blacks preschoolers are still disciplined at far higher rates than white preschoolers. So this is preschool. This is before kindergarten, at least four years old or younger. So it is a little bit alarming to think that the minute a child steps out of the home and into a social setting, not even into a you know real established school system yet, but as soon as they come into even a preschool daycare setting, that as soon as we have any data about the treatment of students, we see disparities from jump. We immediately see that black preschoolers, black children are being disciplined and treated differently than white students. So it is very alarming when you think about the fact that this is the earliest data set we have. So we know that really it is a huge sociological issue like Robert spoke about oppression. oppression. Racism is systemic and it's now permeated through all of the systems that we've set up. Black preschoolers are also 3.6 times as likely as their white counterparts to be suspended from school. Seeing this statistic, I didn't even know that preschoolers were suspended. Like a three-year-old, a four-year-old, you're taking them, removing them from social situations and out of the classroom. 
you know, like maybe that's my opinion. It seems a bit extreme, but we see that when this is implemented, it absolutely is in a disproportionate method. Another example of systemic racism that we could look at is medical racism. So for example, here in the Phoenix area, in South Phoenix, 56% of Latinx people and 64% of African-American people died prematurely of cardiovascular-related issues, whereas only 37% of their white counterparts do. So this term may feel new, but obviously when we look at those historical examples, I mentioned eugenics earlier, we have you know, with the colonization of indigenous peoples here, they were doing forced sterilization, uh, you know, on our indigenous ancestors all the way until like the 1970s. So really it was like my mom or, you know, my Nana's generation, this was still going on. And so when it comes to medical racism, there may have coined new terms for it, but there are deep, deep, uh, social and cultural impacts of historical medical racism which i don't know if you are a person of color you probably understand what i'm talking about and kind of the the psychological impact and relationship that's created with the western medicine and the medical systems we have here today and part of this is an accessibility issue so why would people in you know if they're all living in south phoenix what's the issue they should have access to the same number of hospitals the same number you know of equipment and support so we see that that racism does tie into this and when we look at various parts of phoenix south phoenix has less access to aeds and defibrillators than for example scottsdale we see the same thing with our number of trees right we have many things that stratify us here in our own city Another terrible outcome of OSN, oppression, silence and denial, and normalized harm is sexual violence and rape culture. So rape culture is really a sociological phenomenon to when the entire society or environment normalizes sexual, domestic, and relationship violence. So it's so pervasive that it's viewed as acceptable or normal. And we need to understand that sexual violence is not the true norm, it's only a perceived norm. And they've done studies on this. When we take people outside of that mob mentality on their own, their beliefs may not be playing into, their may not align, excuse me, with the assumptions that they're playing into they think other people have. So we all think that sexual violence is, you know, we perceive it as the norm. We assume other people think it's normal, but really we don't believe that it's the norm. That's not the true norm, which means sexual violence is preventable. It's a very pervasive, very painful issue. And TIP is all about addressing the root causes of this, because if we work with young people, we really can shift the culture. So let's look at a few statistics when it comes to our workplaces and schools. This is where we spend most of our waking hours. We're either going to school all day, every day, or we're at work. So in terms of the workplace, 81% of women and 43% of men experience sexual harassment in the workplace. So 81% is the overwhelming majority. 43% of men, that's significant and not quite half. And we also want to keep in mind when it comes to socialization, Perhaps um, self-reporting statistics 
when it comes to men, uh, what's reported experience um, to them, there might be some disparities there, you know, or some confounding variables when it comes to those numbers. So those are very high numbers. Over in our bottom right corner, we see a very low number, six to 13% of people who experience workplace harassment, sexual harassment, even file a complaint. So we know the majority of them are women and 43% are men, but most people experiencing this at work won't even file a report about it. Is this because they don't have the guts to speak up? Is this because they don't care about what's happening to them? No, check out the statistic in the top right corner. 75% of those people that are reporting sexual harassment get retaliated against. So in your workplace, they're in control of your schedule, they're in control of your pay. There's a lot of power and real tangible impact that your coworkers and your bosses can have on you. And so if the majority of people are being retaliated against, of course, they're not reporting it. So some really gut-wrenching facts in our lower left corner, 81% of females and 78% of males sexual harassment at school, experience sexual harassment at school, and 38% of the time, this is being perpetrated by teachers and staff members. So really when it comes to sexual harassment and sexual violence, we know oftentimes it is somebody that you know and when it comes to youth, it's often somebody that knows that youth, you know, not always like some random scary stranger. So it's just really disheartening to see that number 38% by teachers and staff. And we see that the 81% and 78%, that is not as big as of a discrepancy in terms of what women and men are experiencing in the workplace. So, hmm, wonder why that is. You know, our children are a very vulnerable population. So overall, looking at sexual violence, not just in the workplace, more than one in three women have experienced sexual violence involving physical contact, so touching during their lifetime, and nearly one in four men have experienced sexual violence involving physical contact during their lifetime. So really, I often see, you know, this statistic, essentially half of women have experienced um, some type of physical sexual violence in their lifetime. So very, very alarming statistics. And to know that this is something that is preventable should really motivate us and kind of light a fire under us to create some real change. Another population we have statistics for are um, gay, lesbian, and bisexual high schoolers. So in 2021 in Arizona, 24% of females who were seniors, 28% of gay, lesbian, bisexual, and 18% of other slash questioning um, students had been raped, whereas only 5% of their heterosexual counterparts had, experience, had experienced rape. So we do see, once again, increased risk for females, increased risk for gay, lesbian, and bisexual, and questioning students, significantly greater than 5%. We also saw in terms of suicide, 11% of males, 28% of females, nearly half of gay, lesbian, and bisexual students, and 40% of questioning students made a suicide plan, whereas only 12% of heterosexual students had made that suicide plan. And we know if a plan is made, 
someone is a lot more likely to carry that plan out. And these youth are facing some of the greatest disparities in the nation. And if we add, you know, additional layers to someone being a person of color, socioeconomic status, we only see these realities become even more harrowing. We always um, want to look at indigenous communities, unsheltered communities. And so in the United States, indigenous communities do face the highest rates of sexual violence as compared to any other racial or ethnic group. And so when we think about the mindset and the collective trauma we mentioned earlier, when it comes to genocide, colonization, sexual violence, uh, you know, war, sexual violence has always been inextricably linked with these things. 92% of unsheltered women um, report experiencing severe physical and or sexual assault. 92%, so that's nearly all of of our unsheltered women are reporting this. And again, not harassment, physical and sexual abuse. When looking at ability, our children with disabilities are three to six times, not percent, times more likely to experience um, abuse than children who might be able-bodied, neurotypical. These children are also less likely to receive services and supports that oftentimes are more readily available to other people who have been victimized because there are a lot of barriers when it comes to reporting, uh, not tailoring responses to meet the unique needs of each person. So it's really unfortunate that not only do we see these disparities, but we see that's even harder to report, harder to address and receive the aftercare that is needed. And that's from a national statistic. Section three, uh, trauma-informed so toxic stress is um, this idea that, it's not really an idea, it's a real physical, physiological concept in which a person undergoing so much external um, stressors, whether that be work or um, work or school or family or anything that we um, have to deal with or struggle with in our daily life, while that stress is happening to them, it's changing, it's literally changing the way that their DNA reacts or is encoded or regulated to basically code certain functions of our body. So <clears throat> stress is medically, biologically very toxic to our internal environments and that um, impact on our DNA can be passed down generations and generations into your bloodline. And so when we think about historical trauma and how terrible things were in the past and how bad they are today and whether that toxic stress has built up over generations or been passed down, um, it really kind of explains why we are in a society of oppression, silence, and normalized harm. Because we have this, let's jump to this car example that we always mention. Imagine you have a brand new car um, because your old car was just falling apart, like pieces were falling off and, and it wasn't working because um, you just revved and revved the engine and you just used that car so much. Um, but obviously the engine broke down and it's gone through wear and tear and it's just no longer usable. But you decided, 
I'm going to get a new car. I'm going to re renew the things, you know, I'm going to kind of switch out the shell and I'm going to just use that old engine. The new car is still not going to work. And that's kind of the analogy of what's happening is when we are, you know, having mm, children or passing our, um, passing our experiences into our younger generations is we're just repeating our um, responses from conflict that we've experienced or ingrained to ourselves in the past and that's getting passed down and inherited to our children. And that shows up in the studies that Elijah just explained. So that idea is called epigenetics. Um, it's it's known to cause complications with cancer, um, different functions and different organ systems, and it just negatively affects the way your genes respond or encode for certain things um, like hormones and the endocrine system and all that. Um, there's but because it only affects the way they function instead of the way that they are actually constructed, it can work plenty of different ways. It can open up different functional things or different, it can open up different optimal functions for us or it can shut them down. And so that's what we mean when we say epigenetic changes work both ways because the trauma that has been inflicted onto you in the past can be undone. The effects of it can be undone when we really work with safety, equity, and respect and we really use moments of healing and therapy to um, sort of reverse these negative impacts that we've experienced. So epigenetic impact is known as pre-birth through death. And what we mean by that is um, even before you're born, the, the impact that has the impact that has been inflicted on your family can affect the way you are. And so people of marginalized and oppressed groups experience collective and experience that in their DNA before they're born. I'm just like really nailing this concept down because it's it's so crazy because we can go our whole lives without knowing that and blaming ourselves for why we are the way we are or why these terrible things are happening to us but we have to have this understanding that this is from years of colonization and capitalism so in order to undo that we have to replace the negative with the positive and the best way to start is with empathy there's this quote um, that says empathetic workplaces tend to enjoy stronger collaboration less stress and greater morale and I'm sure as you can see in solutions or as you guys have in your workplaces we know that empathy is the human superpower it really builds a team and we all work effectively not to say that we're only good for as much as we produce but we are as good for as much as we can connect with each other and that's why empathy is how trauma-informed came to be so um the substance abuse and mental health uh administration at the cdc on um, they have their 
own guidelines on being trauma-informed. And so some important factors are being able to recognize harmful behaviors um, that are likely symptoms of past harm and trauma, recognizing the prevalence of ACEs or, and or trauma among most people, and recognizing respect, empathy, kindness, compassion, validation, non-judgment, and empowering others with choices are key in helping people get through trauma. So again, this is that no blame, no shame, no guilt. You cannot, if, when, especially when we're dealing with youth, like, like who is responsible for this kid's actions? It's not entirely them. They were raised in a certain way and they have, you know, genetic disadvantages that have to be undone from years and years of historical trauma. So as Lagaya mentioned, um, SAMHSA slash CDC has their guidelines on trauma-informed um, methods. And so they've come up with six guiding principles to guide this trauma-informed approach. Safety, trustworthiness and transparency, peer support, collaboration and mutuality, empowerment, cultural, historical, and gender issues. So we've touched very heavily on number six, cultural, historical, and gender issues. And so just to give a few examples of these other six guiding principles, we have a good understanding of the history. As Lagai mentioned, how these histories start for in our ancestors before we're even born. So when we looked at that pyramid, before you even have an adverse childhood experience, you've been dealt a certain set of cards. So looking at safety, for example, we talk about this a lot with our students, and it's something very nebulous. It's almost, it's very hard to define. Right, even after years of thinking about it, talking about it, providing examples. So consider that there are different forms of physical safety. Um, one thing, you know, in America, sometimes we are very, you know, or I guess I'll just share from my personal experience, I'm looking for exits. I feel like whether it's just blown up by the media or not, the statistics do, you know, show when it comes to active shooter situations and we don't have natural disaster here in Arizona, but it's mostly other people. I'm always looking for an exit, a clear pathway if I need to make an exit. So if you are in charge of your own space, if you have a classroom, if you have an office, if you work somewhere, have your home, always look at those clear pathways, right? when it comes to ADA compliance, so for entrances and exits, are there ramps available? Are there ways that all bodies and abilities could get through? Or is there sufficient lighting in the case of a power going off? Stuff like that. Um, when it comes to like distractions and sensory overload, so phone noises, you know, that are really loud, electronic notifications from all your devices, really loud popping, banging noises. We know that these can overstimulate and trigger a lot of people. There's interesting, like finally studies have been done about it because of sexism, women are not often studied, but this whole phenomenon of like the thermostat, I don't know if anyone else experiences this, but I go put it down because I'm overheating and then my wife puts it up because she's too warm and it's just back and forth and back and forth. And we see all this anecdotal experience of women being in the office workplace and they've got heaters by their feet and you know blankets on and so you know to each person you know their own but we see these trends and this anecdotal data gets um get supported by empirical evidence that oh depending on people's hormones they actually maintain different body temperatures they actually experience temperature differently so that's another idea of 
safety is like i didn't know you could be sexist with the temperature but you can so there's that period when it comes to touch this is a big one for me so like i have certain religious um I don't know what you call it, rules, accommodations when it comes to touch. And so you don't always want to make the assumption that somebody's ready to hug you or shake your hand. If they come from a different culture, it may be more respectful to, you know, bow or smile or wave or, you know, there, there are different options. Which hand do you shake with? How do you go about it? So talking through those things, you can establish alternative greetings depending on who it is. And so giving people those opportunities to make decisions and consent for themselves. So there's also psychological safety. Um, so how we speak, what we talk about, uh, interpretation, con um, contextualizing like where we are, who are the communities that we serve, what land are we standing on and understanding that history, that trauma that's associated. If you work in the medical field, being aware of medical racism, the tools, the textbooks, the training that you have, who were, were those written by and were they made for black bodies or for all bodies or were they not? Just being very aware of those things that psychological and physical environment you're creating for someone is it really as safe as it can be trustworthiness and transparency so this is really really big with our youth having consistency being predictable we know that is what young people need and so you need really need to have emotional regulation and ex explain what's coming next having agendas and schedules taking care of yourself and taking breaks when needed. We tried to demonstrate this all at the start of our presentation. So when we gave you an agenda and said, take a self-care break, just providing those reminders. We are letting you guys know that we're switching our coalition meeting dates to Monday. Why? We want to create some transparency that we always met at a regular interval in time. For decades, we've done that. We are changing that in order to include more of a youth voice, but we still want to let all of you know. And now with follow through is another component of this. We actually have to do it. Peer support is a huge one that we rely on because people hear, heal better and hear better, right? They hear one another better when they're of the same age group and they feel better. When they see themselves reflected in somebody else, they're listening and they're healing better. Collaboration, so being able to co-create those agendas and those choices and what services you're providing all together with your customer or whoever is receiving your service, however you refer to them, clients, trying to give them some collaboration in that. That leads into empowerment, so giving choice, highlighting the positive um, and resilient aspects of people, not just their trauma, because everybody's complex, right? And so when it comes to goal setting, when you're working with those academically or through their medical care or whatever it is, building those attainable goals that help them achieve success, not make them feel defeated. Section four, trauma-informed um, primary prevention. Trauma-informed primary prevention, also known as TIP, um, is normalized safety, equity and respect, which is also known as SCR, to address and prevent the roots cause of OSN with a trauma-informed lens. SCR to end OSN 
as you know right here, safety, equity, and respect for SCR and OSM is uh, oppression, silence, denial, slash denial, normalized, normalized violence and harm. So we want to ask what does safety exactly look like? And we call it the state of being free from harm, but it's a feeling, obviously, of when you can feel safe to be yourself and feel safe that others can be themselves. And it's this feeling that you can exchange and it's like a space that you can offer for other people. We always say, like, this is a safe space. Well, what truly is a safe space? Can that person say anything in confidentiality without judgment, um, with em empathy, can they say without being interrupted? Um, and we want this feeling, we want to normalize this feeling in our hearts, homes, schools, workplaces, communities, and governments. Next is equity. What does equity look like? So we have this example. I don't know if you've seen the apple tree or the fence for the baseball field, but I really like this bike example. So in order to paint this picture of equity, we have to kind of explain what equality is and why it's been, you know, so praised over, you know, honestly, my whole life until, you know, maybe the past like three years because it's equality, equality, equality. Well, equality is giving everybody the same resource because that's fair, but not everybody in interacts with these resources the same way. As you can see from the diagram, people have different needs and we need to address those different needs. And that is what true fairness, true justice, um, impartiality is. And the state quality of, or ideal of being justice, impartial and fair. Last is respect. Um, and this is similar to safety and that it builds relationships and it's accepting for someone who they are, regardless of their identity, building feelings of trust, safety and well-being. So you have to be open minded and you have to um, make people feel seen, visible um, and heard in any way that they feel comfortable. And, you know, these qualities exact is, you know, our magic formula, you know, the SCR to end OSN. And, and this is what really kind of we put at the forefront. This is what people see, think of first when they think of peer solutions. And this is hopefully, not hopefully, this is what is going to be normalized in order to have a trauma-informed society and community. So we utilize implementation science to max and evidence to maximize your impact. So really what this means is we want to know that what we're doing is working rather than evaluating a big log program and evaluating it at the end of decades. So for example, Peer Solutions has been around since 1996. We're not going to do one big evaluation at the end of time or by a certain year. What this really refers to implementation science is constantly evaluating and quickly evaluating um, the work that you do and refers to those mechanisms that we continuously use to improve and make small adjustments to improve the efficacy of, of what we're doing and to do so more quickly. So we, you know, it's nice to have surveys and data and to use that for grants, but really internally it's so that we know what we're doing works and we can adjust accordingly. So to start, let's look at the SCM, the social ecological model. You heard all about it in our 
little trap wrap if you came in during the lobby earlier. But essentially, all of the things that we're going to tell you we utilize in terms of our science and what backs up what we do, we utilize all of these things across every level of the SEM, which essentially is describing the social ecology that individuals aren't just existing siloed on their own. We have every level here, individuals come together to build relationships. All of those relationships are harnessed into a community where it can be by and for and have these larger strategies and several, many communities can come together, especially now with a, within a globalized society and with social media, you can change the norms and mindset of entire societies and the entire world impacting policy, laws of governments and just overall social change. So when it comes to the practical application of our evidence and what we do, some key factors that we utilize are positive youth-led community development and mobilization. So really what this means is, as you can see on the call today, we have our youth integrating and helping out in the very things that, that we're asking them to do their leaders in their community, and they spread ideas to other youth. As we said earlier, peers, they hear and heal better with each other. Additionally, we don't just ask them to be leaders and not provide that support. We want to make sure that our youth, right? The You want to ensure that the community you're serving, you're giving them developmental assets. So not just, yes, we give communities that assets like money and monetary value, but we know that that's not going to 100% get to the heart of all these issues. Especially for young people, they need access to developmental assets. So it's not just money, it's relationships, academic performance, being involved in their community. So there's been a lot of lot of research to show that positive experiences qualities that influence young people's development this helps them become caring responsible productive adults the more developmental assets they have the less likely they are to engage in risky behaviors and patterns and they can learn from those risky behaviors they might engage in so like like i mentioned earlier all those different risk factors this is the opposite right it's like preventative factors and then we have social norms, change, and marketing. So as I spoke about before, 90% of what we believe is what's modeled to us. And so if we encourage safety, equity, respect, we hope that other people will do that same thing. We have to disillusion ourselves and understand that violence is not the real norm, right? The, the Maybe, you know, the dark underbelly of the world, let's say, people, you know, that are trying to perpetuate violence they want us to think that violence and pain is what's normal and really it's not so we need to be that change we wish to see in the world so to speak and promote something different sort of attuning the norms of society so getting everybody on the same page like hey this is the real norm so especially for young folks are so you know what let me not say young folks i'm going to say mostly adults need social emotional learning Good to see you, Lisette. Thank you. Being able to regulate ourselves and having our needs met helps us reach these higher levels of social change. So 
this allows people to survive and thrive, show empathy towards other people, set goals, have positive relationships, and just overall be good decision makers. They need to feel valued and they need to know how to understand their own emotions. Diffusion of innovation is where we integrate our peer leadership model. So our peer leaders in here, they go to our middle schools, elementary schools, and they can create this widespread change in their community to adopt new sets of ideas and behaviors when they are the ones that do that first and diffuse this new idea to others. Everything that we do has to be by and for our communities. This makes it relevant and it makes it work. If you're not listening and adjusting to the communities that you're serving, everything you're doing is bound to fall apart because it's not for them, it's for you. If you want something to be sustained and carried on from generation to generation to undo those generational changes, as Lagaya mentioned, it needs to work for them. Um, so some of those foundational factors and foundational impacts that we can make in our communities are those protective factors like Elijah was talking about. So let's watch this video. I thought this video um, that goes into what defines what protective and risk factors are, what they look like, what their consequences are for people in development. A number of different factors, some biological or psychological, others social or environmental, give youth greater protection from or increased risk of substance use. Effective substance use prevention focuses on strengthening protective factors and reducing risk factors. Protective factors are the characteristics of individuals, families, or communities that support resilience, help youth more effectively manage stressful events, and strengthen other characteristics that minimize the risk of substance use. They can include things like participation in structured after-school activities, support of family relationships, and positive self-esteem. Every youth is different and the protective factors present in their lives can influence what messages are most effective in preventing substance use. Dig deeper into protective and risk factors for youth substance use prevention and how they can be used for messaging at thenationalcouncil.org slash gettingcandid. So how can we operationalize these protective factors, build resiliency and reverse prevent risk, prevent uh, reverse slash prevent risk factors, sorry. Um, and so safety, equity, and respect, it really kind of follows through and is the foundation of those protective factors. And once we can start really thinking with this tip mindset, then protective factors will almost come naturally to us when we're in our solution stage. Um, so. Yet again, our peer solution's specific vision and mission is to um, have normalized equity, safety, and respect. I can't say it enough, but it is really catchy and it's contagious, which is a good thing. Um, and our mission is peers working with peers to make the world a better place. And as you can see, we have our peer leaders on the call. We are working in our schools, in our 15 sites, in our communities, and we are encouraging this collaboration one-on-one. -on -one. Um, the guts to be good, as you can see um, right here on the slide, there are five guts to be good, as you can see on the side, right, and on the side, and on the shield. The first one at the top is, is um, respectful. The second one is courteous. Third one is honest. 
octopus. The fourth one is lend a hand. And the fifth one is speak up. So as Robert mentioned, we developed the guts to be good as five simple ways that we could implement and on the day-to-day -day do SCR. So like the guy said, SCRs are very catchy and all that, but really we wanted to know and so our, and our youth wanted to know. And so they developed the answer to this question of if this is a very big, you know, idea and it's an ideological thing, how do we put it into practice? So just to provide some examples we have 15 sites as the guy mentioned that we visit weekly and really the way our model works is we go in for lunch and advisory club meetings at these schools and that's how we provide our services after school and summer is also a great opportunity to get a lot of time with students and be that protective factor giving them a safe you know adults that they can be with in addition to family members potentially throughout their life we do peer leadership training. So every week we meet with these wonderful peer leaders in here to help develop their skills, to assist them in the giving over this curriculum and how they deliver that. We also utilize social media to engage in that social norms change and marketing. And we have uh, you know, healing hub with lots of resources for different various uh, populations, you know, with that are culturally and identity specific resources that they can access. And so really that peer leadership model is at the heart of what we do, that it needs to happen peer to peer. Intergenerational, peer to peer. Yay, you're at the monthly coalition meeting. So join us. It's going to be on Mondays moving forward so we can incorporate more of a youth voice. We have family projects, school projects and outreach, newsletters. We promote our guts to be good staff members. All of this in an attempt to use every possible avenue to normalize these values. Right. And you can do the same, whatever your values are. We take our students down to the Capitol and to shadow a legislator day to work with legislators and get at those higher levels of the social ecological model. We have our Tip Talk podcast in order to share various, you know, the endless ideas and interconnectedness of these topics. What's important to our youth? What do they want to talk about? Let's highlight that voice tip certifications. So taking a course with us, a certification similar to what we are doing now so that we have those tools and those discussions on how to be trauma informed and equity work is also at the heart of what we're doing here we really um next week we're doing a diversity equity inclusion and accessibility version of our tip certification so we're always open to creating adapted formats of our tip certification the, we had a longitudinal study done by the University of New Hampshire, which followed 30 students over 20 years. And what we saw is that the impact of peer solutions is real, it's measurable, it's evidence-based, it's supportive. And so we are creating these safe places and still in your spirit of service, volunteerism, leadership opportunities, helping young people be resilient, build empathy, healthy relationships, and overall improving their self-esteem mental health outcomes and academic performance so as compared to the general population students and peer solutions will demonstrate all these things here's my favorite topic to speak about what works for us and what doesn't there are a few things that set us apart as an organization and this is from viewing just 
many, many years and all the various organizations and curricula and ways that people try to develop and work towards the same goal. We need to constantly integrate feedback and input to be better at, we do, at what we do. So let's start with the positive. What works for us? What works for us is always being available for our, our youth and our families year-round, long-term, permanent positive outcomes. So this means we're available in the summer. We're in the schools all throughout the school year. We have events during academic breaks. We always are providing opportunities for our youth. It's led by them and 